Now, will you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24? We're working our way through the Olivet Discourse, and we are going to continue to work our way through the Olivet Discourse today. Um, And once again, we come to a place where there's some tie-ins to motherhood that might not be what we would expect, but they are in there, and some of you have read ahead. We're at a very particular place in time. The disciples have asked Jesus a very, very specific question. He's told them about some troubling things that are coming. He's told them about a kingdom that he is going to bring. And in their hope and in their confusion, they ask, tell us then, uh, when are these things going to pass? And what is going to be the sign of your coming in the end of, age, in the, end of the age? Jesus, uh, when is this going to happen and how are we going to know? And he starts off by giving them some broad understandings to, de- to remind them that there's a delay that this kingdom that they're hoping for isn't right now, that the good that is coming is coming, but that it's not coming right now. There's going to be a delay in a time of even trouble, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines in various places. And last week, we went over some specific pressure that's going to come on people, a time of persecution and rejection, the idea that although you're associated with the king of all kings, although you are the messengers of the Messiah himself, that that doesn't mean that you're going to be welcomed and accepted everywhere. And, you know, we could read through the book of Acts and see how that very quickly bears itself out, that the young church comes under trouble, but that God preserves them. We could look over church history for the last 2,000 years and see that that's the case, that God's people are often put into times of testing and trouble, but that God sustains them. And now we look forward to this time very close to the end when there will be a specific time of trouble and God still sustains his people. And all of this serves to remind us that God's plans aren't derailed by human rebellion, that God's plans aren't derailed by sin. My plans are so easily frustrated by the smallest thing, but an entire world can't change the mind or the sovereign design of God, which is such a comfort to his people. Uh, So he's talked about some very broad things, but today as we move into Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22, he starts talking about some very specific things. There's a change. Not general warnings, but some specific details about this time of tribulation or trouble that is coming. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to begin reading in verse 15 and go down through verse 22. He says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what's in the house, and let the one in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Let's pray. Lord, we're reading and talking about a time of trouble that is to come, but Lord, we understand that we're a people who live in the midst of a troubling time. Uh, Lord, our trouble comes in all kinds of forms. Jobs, money, stress, relationships, uh, antagonism from friends and neighbors, betrayals of all different kinds. Lord, sometimes just the pressure of living uh, with our own failures is almost more than we can bear. Lord, remind us, even as you talk about a time of trouble that is to come, that you are the God who sees and sustains his people in the midst of trouble. Remind us that you are there to hold, to guide, and to guard your people. And that has always been true, and that always will be true. From the beginning of human history to the very end, you are the God who cares 
who sustains his people. And so, Lord, as we open your word to a passage that certainly has different perspectives and different understandings, we ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would open our eyes so that we can see wonderful things from your word, and that you'd give us the wisdom to apply them to our lives. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a consistent metaphor through this first part of Matthew 24, and that is that of childbirth. Now, being a man, I've never been through childbirth, and that was very gracious on God's part because he knows that I'm not nearly strong enough to handle that. I'm barely strong enough to watch my wife go through those things. In fact, I think it was during our first child as she prepared to have Hannah and kind of labored overnight uh, that I slept in theory, so that I could give her the strength when she needed it, mostly because I had no idea what to do, and that was the only answer that I could come up with. I'm not saying that was the right answer, by the way. But all of us who have watched the process of a pregnancy unfold know kind of the, the process that it looks for. It's this unfolding that happens. There's the first time that you hear the heartbeat. There's the time when you first start to notice the baby bump. There's that first time when you feel the baby move. There's that first really weird pregnancy craving. And there's all these things that mean that a baby is growing and in process. And even if you were to remove the calendar, even if you were to take away the countdown and all of those other things that we have, there are things that you could observe that would tell you that the baby is close. There's a time, again, I am told, zero personal experience, that the baby kind of drops and moves into position, and for the first time in like a month, apparently you're able to breathe again. But it means that the baby's close. There's contractions that begin. There's water that breaks. There are physical signs that mean that the baby is not only there and not only in process and not only getting closer, but there are things that we look to that tell us the baby is imminent that the time is just about at hand. And I think that's a really beautiful illustration for what Jesus is communicating here. There are ways to know that the end is in process. And now as we move further on into the text today, uh, there's ways to see that the end is not only in process, but that it's coming. And one of those very specific signs of the end is that we're, what we're looking at today. And Jesus grounds it specifically in a reading from Daniel. So this first part is going to be an understanding of Daniel. And while our chapter, our text today starts in verse 15, and we will start there in just a moment, I want to fast forward a little bit because when we come to this passage, really the whole 24 and 25, but as we start in this passage, now we start to get some very different perspectives that take us in different directions. We can come to the study of the end and thinking about the end. And again, I've said it before, but we can go in kind of two very, very different directions. Some of us will look at these things and say, well, since there's disagreement and since it seems to be hard, I don't really want to deal with it at all. Uh, if I know that God wins, isn't that good enough? And I can just move along with my life. And that's not ultimately helpful because God's given us these things, not only for our understanding, but so that we can apply them. They're a comfort. Uh, they encourage us. Studying hard things keeps us humble. It makes us ask good questions. It forces us to study and to think and to interact with people and to change our minds some, sometimes. But then there's other people who come to passages like this and establish their view of what's going to happen in the end. And right or wrong, uh, they use that as kind of the standard for all of orthodoxy, where if you don't agree with me on every fine point of detail, uh, then you really might not be part of the church at all. And that is way too far. Uh, there are good and godly men and women who disagree on some of the specifics. In fact, as we go through today, some of you might very well disagree with some things I say, and some of you might disagree with a lot of things I say, and that's okay. Uh, we should have those conversations. But again, if we don't know how to apply what we learn, then none of it really matters. 
And we'll start in verse 15 in just a minute. But as you look down, look at verse 21 with me. Jesus says, there's going to be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. Last week I told you that tribulation meant trouble, distress, a severe trial. And it was applied fairly generally to what is going to come on Jesus' disciples last week. This is a little bit different. In this passage, it's talking about a particular time of trouble, a particular tribulation. It's called a great tribulation. It's marked out as unique, something that we'll see as we go through the passage in a bit. And I want to kind of let you know just right up front that there are two very, very broad ways of understanding this time of tribulation. Uh, one understanding is that this time of tribulation is not a definite set period of time. It's a time of suffering that either happened in the past or began in the past and carries on through today. There's another understanding that says that this particular time of tribulation is marked out by a particular number of days, months, and years, and is still in the future. Those are by far oversimplifications of both of those positions. And there are nuances and differences and distinctions within those two broad things. But the, that is kind of the broad dividing line. And I'll tell you uh, that I hold that this is something that is to come in the future, that this is a definite marked out period of time that is yet coming and that we anticipate just before the coming of Christ. Now, all that to say, that kind of informs how we read what we read going forward. So now go back to verse 15, and we're going to kick this off with Daniel's prophecy. Jesus grounds this in an understanding of what Daniel writes. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And he says, then, and he'll go to give instructions. But remember what he said before. He said, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. But he said, don't be alarmed. He said, there's going to be famines and earthquakes in various places. But he said, that's not the end. Those are the beginnings of the birth pains. He said, there's going to be trial and tribulation and persecution and betrayal and abandonment. But he tells them to endure to the end. But something changes here. He talks about a very specific event. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place... I just want to understand some of those words, because that's a lot of words that we don't use every day. An abomination is something that's blasphemous. It's unclean. It's immoral. It's unholy. If you write a book with a lot of abominations in it, read uh, the book of Ezekiel. It's over 40 times that he uses that word. And desolation means destruction or devastation. So there's something unholy, something blasphemous that is put up in the holy place, which consistently through Matthew and the New Testament is used to talk about the temple. Something blasphemous that brings on destruction. He says, let the reader understand that this is what Daniel was talking about. Now, here's the problem. Most of us have heard that, well, the name Daniel, and most of us know some of the big stories from Daniel. If you've been to vacation Bible school or if you've been to church and you've seen the flannel graphs or the coloring sheets or the veggie tales, you know some stories about Daniel. Most of us can remember the story of a king who had a dream about a big statue and a rock that destroyed the statue. Most of us remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if we can't pronounce their names, and the fiery furnace that God kept them through. Lots of us remember the writing on the wall from a giant hand that said the kingdom was being taken away from King Belshazzar. We remember Daniel in the lion's den. We have kind of these signpost stories from the book that mark out the faithful life of Daniel. The problem is that only takes us up to Daniel chapter 6, and there's 12 chapters. 
And Daniel 7 through 12, well, it gets a little difficult because Daniel 7 through 12 is all of these visions about what's coming in the future. And if Jesus is talking about something that Daniel wrote about, and he is, and in that particular portion of the book, and he is, and if we've never actually read or understood that portion of the book, and lots of us haven't, then when he says, let the reader understand, we're left without understanding. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles back to Daniel chapter 7. We are not going to go through Daniel 7 through 12 exhaustively. Uh, we can't present every nuance of every viewpoint and the pros and cons of every view. I'd make a great Sunday school class. I'd make a great theology lecture. We would never get through Matthew's gospel. You would never get in line for Mother's Day brunch after that. We're not going to do that today. But we are going to develop a broad understanding of what's going on. So at least when Jesus says, let the reader understand, we have some kind of an understanding of what's going on. We need to understand that Daniel writes to a troubled people in troubled times. God has warned Israel for years that their rebellion will have consequences, and now those consequences have come. Assyria has come in, and they have wiped out the northern ten tribes. And now Babylon has come, and they are in the process of conquering the southern kingdom of Judah. And they kind of do it in phases. They come and they lay siege to the city. They take away a number of important and influential and wealthy people. Daniel is among those who are taken to Babylon. And eventually, they lay waste to Jerusalem. They destroy the temple, and that happens in 586 B.C. Don't worry, no test on that date. But Daniel is writing from captivity to a people who are in the process of being conquered. He writes to a city that is falling and will see it fall. In Daniel chapter 7 through 12 are this series of visions given to Daniel that deal with the future. Daniel chapter 7, verse 2, he says, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. That's a great start to a novel. But that's a difficult way to begin a prophecy. <laughs> especially one that we can't dive into for a whole bunch, but suffice to say that those four beasts represent these four kingdoms that are going to come. And what you see is that kings and kingdoms rise to power and then fade away. They rise to power and then they're overthrown. They rise to power and they're replaced by something that comes after them. But there's a great contrast in Daniel chapter 7. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel writes, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Now who throughout Matthew's gospel has been called the son of man? Jesus. Great Sunday school answer, and it happens to be absolutely correct in this instance. I saw one coming like the son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. A great theme through the book of Daniel, a major theme in the book of Daniel is that human powers rise and fall. Earthly kings and kingdoms come and go. The most widespread earthly power is temporary at best, but there is a kingdom coming that is not like them. There is a king and a kingdom coming that will never be shaken, that will never be overthrown. So there's these great kingdoms that are coming in the future before the Son of Man establishes His kingdom, but Daniel asks specifically about the fourth kingdom that's coming because it's different from the others. 
As you go through the rest of Daniel 7, Daniel is told that there is a king coming out of this last kingdom who is distinct. He's different in the amount of power that he has. He's different in the boastful, blasphemous, horrible words that he says. He's different in the antagonism that he offers the world. A great and terrible king that is coming, but a great and terrible king who, like all of the other kings, will be done away with and judged. And you say, that's great. I've scanned all the way through the chapter. I don't see anything about a tribulation, nothing about an abomination of desolation, and no clue about whether this time of trouble is literal or definite or future at all. Hang with me. We're getting there. Uh, Daniel 7 becomes kind of the framework for the rest of the book. Kingdoms that will come, a king that is coming that is distinct, and a kingdom that will replace and supplant all of those. Turn over a page or two to Daniel chapter 9, if you would. Daniel chapter 9 begins with one of the most striking prayers, at least to me, in all of Scripture. Look at how it starts. Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, it's a lot of words to say that Darius is now the king, it says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel says, a king comes to power, and I was reading in the prophet Jeremiah, and I understood that 70 years had been given for Jerusalem's destruction. And if you look in Jeremiah 29, that's exactly what God says. For 70 years, you are going to go into captivity. And Daniel says, I read Jeremiah's prophecy, and he sees that those 70 years are up. And by the way, that is critical. When Daniel reads prophecy, Daniel reads prophecy literally. He understands years to mean years, and he understands that what God says isn't a a mystical thing that you really have to formulate your way around, that, that if God says something is going to happen, that is exactly what is going to happen. And Daniel says it's been 70 years. And Daniel begins to pray, and he doesn't begin to demand that God restore his people The next 16 verses are this prayer of confession. Daniel talks about the great sin of his people, and he talks about the great compassion and faithfulness of the Lord. And if you know Daniel at all, the book of Daniel, Daniel is never presented really as failing. We know that he was human. We know that he was fallen. But he's just so faithful all the way through this book. And you would think that maybe you come to chapter 9, and he says, those people really blew it. Now restore us because you're good. He doesn't. He says, we have failed. He joins himself right in with this rebellious people and he asks for God's mercy. So 70 years have passed and Daniel prays on behalf of his people and he's going to get an answer that pertains to his people. While he's speaking and praying, Confessing his sin, this is verse 20, and the sin of his people, presenting his plea before the Lord for the holy hill of my God, which is in Jerusalem. While I was speaking in prayer, Gabriel came at the time of evening sacrifice, and Gabriel, this angel, gives him an understanding. And Gabriel tells him this in verse 24, 70 weeks, literally 70 sevens, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. He says, Daniel, I'm going to give you an answer regarding your people. 
It's interesting. Daniel prays for restoration, and Gabriel says, this is what's happening. And he says, 77, 70 groups of seven years, if you look at the context and how that's used through the rest of the book, are decreed for your people. But who are his people? Well, in the context, his people is Israel. And he says there's 70 groups of seven years that are coming. There's going to be a decree that goes out to rebuild Jerusalem. That's good news if you're in exile. And he says in seven weeks and 62 weeks. And seven plus 62 is 69 weeks. That's good. i got to make sure you're awake. And some of you math people who have nothing to do with literature, you really need these things. For the rest of you, don't worry, I'll give you the answer. 69 weeks. He says there's 69 weeks that are coming. And after that period of 69 weeks, some things are going to have happened. Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. And he says that an anointed one, a prince, is going to come and he's going to be cut off. Verse 26, after the 62 weeks, so after the seven weeks where Jerusalem is rebuilt, and after the 62 weeks after that, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. 69 sevens is 483 years. And 483 years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, Jesus, the Messiah, comes into his city. And at the end of the week that we are in in Matthew 24, he's cut off. In other words, once again, God does exactly what he tells Daniel. You don't have to try to manipulate numbers or see what he meant spiritually by this. God says that this period of time is going to pass and it does, and this is what's going to happen, and that's exactly what happens. And you say, well, 69 weeks, but if 70 weeks are given, we're a week short. What happens to that last week? What happens to that last period, that last seven? Matthew 9, or I'm sorry, Daniel 9, verse 26. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. At the end of that 62 weeks, the anointed one, the Messiah, the prince, is cut off. And Jesus is killed, crucified. And he says, and something happens. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. After that week 69, there's a stop. And Daniel begins to talk about things that are going to happen after that week. The people of a prince who is to come, in the context, once again, of Matthew, that fourth uh, kingdom, that king that is to come out of that, the people of that kingdom are going to come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened in 70 A.D. Shall come with a flood, and to the end there will be war. Daniel says that the city is going to be destroyed, and then all the way to the end there's going to be war. Desolations are decreed. Now what have we just heard in Matthew 24? What is going to happen all the way up until the time when Messiah returns? Wars and rumors of wars, famines and plagues and earthquakes. Matthew 24 doesn't come out of a vacuum. But we're still not in that 70th week. We're still not in that 70th seven. How do we know? Because look at verse 27. He says, And he, so that prince who is going to come, is going to make a strong covenant with the many for one week. That's when that last week happens. When there's this strong covenant made with the many. And who are the many? Again, in the context, Daniel is receiving word about his people. About the Jewish people. About those who have had a time decreed for them. And for half of the week... So he's going to make a covenant with them for one week, a period of seven. And for half of the week, after three and a half years, he's going to put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. There we go. 
That's the abomination that makes desolate. Daniel has now given us a hint of what's going to come. On the wing of the abomination that makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This one who is to come, this one who makes the covenant, breaks that covenant. And that's at the first mention of the abomination of desolation. Something that is despicable and brings about destruction is coming, and it's tied to this covenant, and it's tied to this stopping of the sacrificial system. It's tied to the Jewish people, and ultimately it ends with the one who does the abomination of desolation. It ends with his destruction. Skip over another couple of pages to chapter 12. It's the last chapter in the book of Daniel. And at this time, he's hearing about a time to come. He's getting another glimpse into the future. Daniel 12:1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation until that time. A time of trouble like nothing that has ever been. Again, that should sound familiar to us. It's what Jesus is drawing on the language of in Matthew 24. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. A time of distress is going to come, and it's specifically centered around his people, but everyone who's written in this book will be rescued, a predetermined number uh, that God has in mind and that God keeps even in this time of trouble. Remember that because we're going to come back to it again in Matthew 24. There's a broken covenant that leads to a tremendous period of persecution and suffering for Daniel's people. A persecution that's marked out for a specific period of time. Times time and half a time. Two, one and a half. Half of that week. Three and a half years. But he says, after this, there's coming a time of resurrection. That's in verse 2. Some are going to be raised to shame and some to everlasting life. He talks about those who are wise, shining with the brightness. Then he tells Daniel all of these things relate to the end. And Daniel wants to know how long. How long is this going to last? Well, the angel tells him that this time of trouble lasts for three and a half years. In verse 7, time, times, and half a time until the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, and then it's all finished. And Daniel says, I still don't understand. And the angel says, Daniel, write it down and go. Write it down and go be obedient. This is all going to come to light in the end. From the time when these things are set up is predetermined and prescribed, and God knows. Many are going to fall. Many are going to turn away. Many are going to act unwisely and wickedly. But those who have insight will understand. Those in the book will live. Justice and mercy, trouble and hope, all set up for this end of time. Now, that's barely skimming the surface of Daniel, and I hope it didn't cloud the issue. I just want you to see uh, again broadly that when Jesus says this, when he talks about what Daniel wrote, he's not just pulling it out of nothing, that the people had some understanding of what this would look like. But Matthew 24 is rooted in Daniel. It's rooted in the writings of the other prophets. And as we uh, kind of neglect those things, because they're hard, because they're confusing, because they're just not familiar to us, we really rob ourselves of a foundational understanding of what he's talking about in Matthew. So now turn back to Matthew 24, because I want to finish up very quickly, uh, not just with reading through Daniel, but how Jesus says that they're supposed to respond to that danger. 
And the first thing that we see in Matthew 24 is that this is a very urgent time. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then in verse 16, then things need to happen. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. If you're on the housetop, flat roofs in those days, enjoying the cool of the evening, and you see this happen, don't go back to pack. Leave. If you're out in the field and you're working, don't turn back to get your cloak. And that's kind of a big deal. You weren't even allowed to keep keep someone's cloak overnight uh, as a form of payment or security because it was that much of a necessary item. It, It kept you warm. It gave you shelter from the evening. He says, don't even go back to get the most important things. There's an urgency to this. When you see this happen, you need to get out of town. And again, that is a very sharp contrast from what we've heard before. Wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. Famines and earthquakes. This is just the beginning of birth pains. Troubles and persecutions endure to the end. Now, when you see this happen, you need to leave. Alas, for those women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing in those days, it is hard to plan to go somewhere with kids. It is incredibly difficult to flee under duress and hard circumstances when you have little ones. And this is going to be a time of urgency. Verse 20, pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath. This is not going to be a time when you choose the best time to travel. Sabbath would not be a good time to travel if you were a Jew. Winter is not a good time to travel when roads might be difficult to traverse. But at this point, the ability to leave is going to outweigh the desire for good traveling conditions. This is written to a people at a particular time, but it's not just an urgent time. Finally, we're going to come back to verse 21, and we need to look at the fact that this is a unique time. Not only urgent, but absolutely unique. He says, for then, at that time, when the abomination of desolation is set up in that particular place, at that time, there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. That specific act in that specific place is tied to a specific time of trouble. And the Jews had an understanding of what this might look like. Hundreds of years after Daniel wrote, but more than 100 years before Jesus came, in 167 BC, a Greek ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes set up an altar to Zeus in the temple. He offered the blood of a pig on the altar of Israel, and that was about the most despicable thing that they could imagine. And they actually called to and referred to that event as the abomination of desolation. The temple was desecrated. But that was just a preview of what was to come. How do we know? Because Jesus writes this, again, some 200 years later, talking about this future event that's still to happen. Jesus knows his people's history. He knows about Antiochus Epiphanes. He knows what happened in the temple in 167. But he says this that Daniel wrote about is still to come. Jerusalem in 70 AD. The people set up a priesthood that isn't based on the line of Aaron. It's this false, abominable priesthood. You have the armies of Rome that surround and destroy the temple, tear it down stone by stone. And it's another preview, another picture of the coming desolation. But how do we know that that's not it? How do we know? Uh, that the abomination of desolation that Daniel speaks of is still in the future. 
because when Daniel talks about the abomination of desolation, and he talks about the judgment that comes on that coming prince, he talks about the immediate coming of a kingdom. Because in places like Jeremiah 30, we have very similar language. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, uh, Jeremiah says that there's a day of trouble coming, a day of trouble that's so great that there's none like it, a time of distress for Jacob, Israel, but that he'll be saved out of it. You say, yeah, but wasn't there trouble when the people were exiled? Yes. Wasn't there trouble under Antiochus Epiphanes? Absolutely. Wasn't there a time of terrible trouble in 70 AD when the city is destroyed and people are murdered by the tens of thousands? Absolutely. But the very next verse in Jeremiah says this, and it will come to pass in that day, in this day of trouble like no other, that God will break the yoke of oppression from their neck and burst the bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, that is Israel. But Israel will serve the Lord their God and David their king, who I will raise up for them. After this time of trouble, prophetically, Israel turns to God. And at this point, even after 70 AD, many foreign nations ruled over the people of Israel. Even today, right now, the vast majority of God's people... Israel, don't worship him rightly. They don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. You remember what he said at the very end of Matthew 23, you will not see me again until you, Jerusalem, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People aren't prepared to say that yet. We know because we look forward to the book of Revelation and it echoes and mirrors so much of what Daniel wrote about a king who is coming, who will wage war against the saints, who will overcome them for a time and who will ultimately be crushed by the coming of the Messiah. Look at verse 22. Because the wrath of God isn't the final word. It says, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. There's mercy in the middle of this. See, this coming time of trouble, it is directed in refining the people of God but it's not limited to one geographic area. This coming time of trouble like none other and none before and none after impacts the whole earth. How do we know that this, isn't yet fut- that this isn't in the past? Because this time of trouble, it says, if it hadn't been cut short, no human being would be saved. There's a worldwide distress. And if you read through the book of Revelation, it, it talks about a third of humanity being killed at one point and a quarter of humanity being taken at one point. And you read through that and it's like, that must be hyperbole until you understand that prophetically God's wrath that is poured out on sin would utterly decimate humanity if he had not put bounds to it. Even his justice is measured and purposeful, and in Matthew 24, verse 21, I'm sorry, verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Just like Daniel 12, 1 promised, And that phrase is a great one for us to end on today. For the sake of the elect, those days would be cut short. Because whether you agree with me or disagree with me on all the finer points of the tribulation, whether you agree with me or disagree with me on this time of trouble that is to come in Daniel, there are two great resounding themes that come out of that one little phrase that are absolutely comforting. And this is the first one. God knows who are his people. This is the first time in the New Testament that he calls his people the elect. It certainly won't be the last time. Chosen called to himself. 
In other words, God does not sit in heaven and wonder if the gospel does its work. God does not sit in heaven and wonder whether people are going to respond by faith to this almost unbelievable message of a Christ who would die for them. God does not sit in heaven and wonder whether everything is going to work out. God knows who his people are. The shepherd knows his sheep. The names are written in the book of life. The picture is given in many places and in many ways, but the reality is the same, that God has redeemed for himself a people, and they are not the good people. They are not the smart people. They are not the wealthy people. They are not the influential people. They are not the deserving people. They are the people who God has set his mercy on. Sinners like you and me. And the second great reality is this, that not only does God know his people, but that God cares for his people. In the middle of what is described as the greatest period of trial and trouble in human history, God cares for his people. Does that mean that they don't suffer? No. Does that mean that there's no danger for them? Absolutely not. But he does not lose track of one, not for a moment. The God who has sovereign control over all of creation knows and cares for his people. Which means that this is a passage of both trial and triumph. And passages like this one are difficult. They bring us back to places in Scripture that we're not very familiar with. They talk about difficult things like trouble and trial. They bring up discussions and maybe even good-natured arguments among well-meaning Christians. And in the middle of sections like this, especially in the middle of long sections of prophecy, we can lose sight of the most important thing, and that is that when all of these things come into fruition, there's a kingdom that's coming. We can't lose sight of the fact that through all of this, the king is coming again. That sin doesn't change the plan. That rebellion doesn't make God change his mind. That the trouble is real, the trouble is painful. But God is sovereign and God is faithful. And the king is coming again. So how do we set our minds rightly in light of that? Just two things today. First of all, we need to be people who confront the reality of who the king is. Some of you might be a bit lost, and that might be being generous. If you haven't been through Matthew's gospel with us, if you haven't been involved in church, this church, or maybe any church for a long time, then when we start talking about the end, uh, things get really muddy really quickly, and I understand that. But I don't want you to leave here today or stop the recording or move on to the next thing without being confronted by a very clear reality, uh, and that is that the king is coming, and you have to know who this king is. The details of prophecy are fascinating and interesting, and I love those conversations, and they're important ones to have. They are given for a purpose, but behind all of that, you have to understand who this is talking about, that there is a God who formed and made all of creation. And that God told us that we were to live like him in order to be in fellowship with him, and we all fall short. That our sin, our failure, separated us from the God who made us. But that through Jesus Christ, he's made a way for us to be reconciled, to be brought back into relationship with him. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't read about it enough. We couldn't give enough. We couldn't try hard enough to restore what sin broke. But that God did that through the work of Jesus Christ his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection that we celebrate at Easter that guarantees our 
life, our resurrection. The fact that God is not silent, that God did not leave us to our own devices. And if you've never confronted that reality, then I don't want you to get lost or hung up on the details of prophecy. Again, as fun and important as those are, I don't want you to leave here or stop listening today without questioning how you are related to this coming king. And the second thing is we need to be comforted by this king. Some of us here very likely need the comfort that's embedded in this passage because I'm guessing that uh, you either have at some point in the past or maybe even are currently wondering whether God actually really cares. Most of us won't say that out loud because it just doesn't sound right. But maybe you're walking through trouble and you have for a long time. Maybe it's your physical body that's breaking down and failing you. Maybe it's relationships that are crumbling around you. Maybe it's just that crushing weight of anxiety and despair that makes you feel like you can't even take the next step or you wouldn't have the strength to take it even if you knew what it was. Maybe it's on Mother's Day when you know that it's supposed to be a time of joyful celebration and it's just a reminder of what you once had and you lost or what you never had but you desperately long for. And you wonder, if there is a God of light out there, then certainly he should have showed up by now. And I don't mean this as like a pat on the head, things aren't really that bad, it's all going to be fine, you'll see. Pain is real. Heartbreak is real. Trials are real. And sometimes testing feels like being in the middle of a fire. But we need the reminder that God never leaves his people. How do we know? Because we have proof after proof through his word and in our lives that he doesn't. He didn't abandon his people in Egypt or in the wilderness. He didn't abandon them even when he punished them and sent them into other nations. Jesus didn't leave his disciples even after he went to the cross. God's never abandoned his church through 2,000 years of church history, and God will not abandon you and has not abandoned you now. Even as he points forward to the most devastating time in human history, Jesus reminds his people that God knows who are his and that he acts on their behalf. That even struggling and pain are not wasted, that God uses those things to bring us to him to make us dependent on him and ultimately to make us more like him. And Christian, we can look up because we know the king is coming again. Let's pray. Lord, help us to remember the things that we have to remember. That you are God, that you are good, and that you are coming again. Lord, help us to order our lives in a way that actually reflects that. Help us to think clearly about who you are. Lord, I pray that if people are listening, hearing that don't know you, that they would ask those real questions uh, about whether this matters and why it matters, about how they can understand what eternity looks like. Lord, I pray that you would continually work in our lives and make us more like you through whatever means you choose, Lord. Uh, give us strength 
in trials. Give us grace and mercy even in difficulty. Lord, I pray that this church would be a place where people surround one another with love and care, affection and help. And I would pray that we would be a people who consistently pull each other toward looking to the future, a time when we will be with you face to face. And we long for that day. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.